when life is getting me uh, down and I'm feeling exhausted and I just need a, a, a rest, um, there, there are several methods that I have of um, escapism. Uh, and these are the ones that I utilise, just so you know. Um, Binge-watching West Wing, that's one that I'm going through at the moment. I can just, you know, just tune out and just watch three episodes in a row. Going to the cinema during the daytime on my own. So good. And uh, going into the music room at home and just um, playing with music and recording music and shutting the door and hours can go by. It's so good. And we all have our techniques and that's okay. It's... Uh, some people say escapism is a bad thing. I think it's probably okay, to a you know to a point, uh, as long as you've got it under control, as long as you are facing reality in your life. Uh, so even the word escapism, maybe it's a pejorative way of describing relaxing. You know, is lying on the beach escapism? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. It's the people who are actually workaholics and. Uh, escaping through their work that are often the ones that are the most against it, aren't they? I do want to introduce you to another form of escapism, though, this morning. It's a unique form of escapism called, which I call, I've made it up, you won't have heard it before. It's called Christian escapism. It's the escapism that Christians do uh, to escape God, to escape the voice of God. One of the most famous people in the Bible who did this is, of course, Jonah. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the story of Jonah. We're going to dig deep into it. This satirical story of Jonah. It's satirical because all the characters you will meet are the opposite of what you expect, which is what satire is. To the point where it's actually funny. And there's a few big themes in this book that's worth just holding in the back of your mind as you read through it and think about it that are worth noticing. First of all, and this is an ascending order of importance. So first of all, death and life. All the, experience, all the characters' experiences at one level. Death to life. Um, crying out to God is a second theme. All the characters do that. They cry out to God. And thirdly, most importantly, the big, big, big thing to look out for is our attitude to a God who forgives his enemies. And we're going to come back to that time and time again. Because the extent to which you can grasp that, which is the heart of this book, will be the extent to which you can grasp how profound the gospel is. And this morning as we look at Christian escapism, and more specifically Jonah's escapism, you'll see these themes pop out in different ways. So let me introduce you to our first upside-down character, Jonah. Now, you might not realise this, but Jonah actually appears in the Bible before the book of Jonah. In 2 Kings uh, 14, verse 24, he was a Galilean prophet in the time of the king Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdoms. And... um, this was obviously before the time of uh, the captivity by the Assyrian army in 722. And what we see in that little glimpse is Jonah being a bit of a dodgy prophet. Um, he counsels King Jeroboam II uh, with regards to the, the threat from the Assyrian army. And basically, he sucks up to him and he says, oh, it's all going to be okay. What's going to happen is 
your kingdom, Jeroboam II, is going to expand, the borders are going to expand, and you'll be, God's going to bless you. And if you know a little bit about this time in the period, the 8th century BC for Israel was a time of great prosperity and also a time of injustice. So, um, as in the Israelites committing injustice to the poor and not worshipping God as they should. So God actually sends other prophets like Amos, Hosea and Joel to come and really lay down the line and say it as it is. And if you read those books... At the end of the Old Testament, you'll see really how bad it was for Israel. And you'll see how off the mark Jonah was in his prophecy. So when we meet Jonah in the Bible, in the book of Jonah, we're already like, oh, that guy. That's who we're supposed to be thinking of. He's the guy that was a bit of a dodgy prophet. And yet God chooses him to be his messenger in this story. He's the reluctant prophet. This is satire. You see prophets in the Bible, you expect them to be great, men of God, righteous, and yet you see this eccentric, strange, rebel, reluctant prophet. God asks um, the prophet Jonah, which curiously means dove, that's what his name means, don't know if there's significance there, maybe there is, to go to Nineveh in Assyria to preach against its wickedness. Now at this point, Jonah would have been trembling in his boots. I don't care how obedient you think you are to God. If you were asked to do this, you would have been trembling too. You would have been scared out of your brains. Because the Assyrians were notorious for being brutal, um, violent, um, and you know, persecutory to their people. So think ISIS. Think the Nazis. Go to the Nazis and preach to them and tell them how wicked they are. That's what God is telling Jonah. So you can sort of understand his reaction. And this is all true and historical. We're not talking about some pretend people here. When I was in Germany last month, um, I went to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. And it's filled with biblical archaeology, uh, this, this, um, this museum. And one of the things that I saw was a, uh, a carved relief of the Ninevites, the, the Assyrian army in Nineveh from the time of Jonah in front of me. Uh, it was amazing to see. And what they're famous for is their pointy beards that they had. Um, and so we are talking about real people here. So you can see why Jonah is afraid, but also he would have been thinking to himself, what is God doing? Why is he sending? Why should God be paying attention to these evil um, people? Why should I be ministering to them? Why does God want me to do this? Is I hope God's not going to show grace to these people because if he does, I'll be pretty annoyed. That's what he's thinking. Why doesn't he just destroy them and be done with it? Sometimes God is asking us to do things we don't want to do, isn't he? And usually, 99.9% of the time, it actually is not that costly for us. It's far from the kind of thing that Jonah's being asked to do. It could be giving your money away to someone that needs it. Perhaps it's speaking up about your faith to a relative who's not a Christian. Maybe it's simply being obedient to his holy law in some kind of way. Now, sometimes God does ask us to do something challenging and scary, like go to Nineveh and preach. Sometimes that does happen. But mostly God just asks us to do stuff that makes us feel awkward or nervous, like lead Sunday school. Whoa. You know, it's not quite the same, is it? Or 
talk to the homeless person that you bump into in the street. Or stand up for the bully. Stand up against the bully, sorry. Don't stand up for the bully. At school. Break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend if they're leading you away from Jesus. Rebuke a friend who's living in grievous sin and you know that you're not saying anything. It makes you nervous. You know God wants you to say something, but you don't. How do you respond when you receive that call from God? That you just that feeling in your gut. You know God wants you to do something. And how do you respond? Well, this is what Jonah did. He bought a ticket on a boat that would take him to Tarshish, which is in southwest Spain. If you look on your booklets, you can see it on page two, a little map, what we're talking about. It's like basically the westernmost, furthest away place in, in the Mediterranean world. And God wants him to go that way, and Jonah gets a ticket to go that way, the exact opposite way. Jonah did not want to have to face up to God's request. So he thought it would be better to have a complete change of scene. He's a prophet and he knows he can't really escape God. He knows that um, Yahweh is omnipresent. He knows he's a prophet. He created the world. He's therefore everywhere in the world. He created the sea. He's therefore everywhere over the sea. He created Tarshish for that matter. Jonah was attempting some form of spiritual escapism. And also he was, let's just face it, he was sticking his finger up at God. God wanted him to go east, and he said, get stuffed, I'm going west. He was chucking a tantrum. And he also didn't want to get in trouble with the Ninevites. He would rather protest to God that he would have no part in speaking the word of God to them. They didn't deserve it. So Jonah, can you see how he's the very opposite of what you expect? He's not the prophet that you usually meet in the Bible. He, in fact, is a disobedient man of poor character. Now, the story goes on, and we meet some more people, some new characters. Jonah boards a ship, and he goes down below the deck for a snooze. And meanwhile, a violent storm comes upon the ship, And we meet our next satirical characters, the sailors. Now, in literature like this, and even in modern literature, if you think, um, I don't know, Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, I was thinking about where where are the sailors, or, you know, pirate movies. Leo went to see last night at the comedy theatre. Peter Pan, and you've got, you know, pirates and sailors and that. If you think about the normal way you imagine sailors, hopefully there's no sailors in the congregation today, you imagine, you know, hip flask, you know, you know, dodgy characters. Uh, were to expect the moral equivalent of a, a bachelor pad on the ocean. You know, these guys are not known for their spiritual insights. They're not known for uh, being humble, righteous men. And in this comedy of errors, we see these dodgy pagan sailors actually move towards Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so a frantic conversation begins on the boat as this storm whips up. And what we don't see uh, in our English translations is that the conversation is in a mix of Hebrew and Aramaic and they jump from one language to the other and they talk to each other in a bit of this and a bit of that and they talk to Jonah in a bit of this and a bit of that. So you can imagine this cross-cultural you know, dialogue going on frantically as the waves and the wind are blowing. 
It's quite scary for them. And they're bewildered by what Jonah reveals to them. They cry out to their own gods and nothing happens. They throw their cargo overboard and nothing happens. But Jonah, now apparently free on his escapist journey away from God, is asleep down below, but he's going to have to face up to what's really happening. And I'll just read you and remind you of what happens. Verse 6, the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots. You know, the short short straw, however you do it. And the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So the storm showed the sailors that Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, really was the God of the universe because he was the one controlling this uh, storm and that Jonah was consciously disobeying his God and they were just confused at why he would do that. And they were right. Jonah's life was falling apart. The house of cards was coming down already in the first sort of ten verses of the first chapter of this book. He was a prophet of Yahweh. Now he's potentially going to die a miserable death with these pagan sailors. What an end to his life. When Christian friends of mine um, get into a state of complete rebellion against God, in such a way that it is really, really serious. All sin is serious, but you know, sometimes people start doing things and you just go, what are you doing with your life? I'm always astounded at how they can gamble away everything for the sake of their sin that they want to do. The obvious example of this is the person who has an affair. They throw their marriage in the toilet. They ruin the life of their spouse and their kids. They stick their middle finger up at God, just like Jonah did. Their life crumbles around them. And I think, why are you doing this? Which is what the sailors are thinking about Jonah. What we're supposed to be thinking as we see Jonah here. Why do we sin so badly when we know the consequences? The sailors are not going to have a bar of this, and they start thinking through different maritime disciplinary measures. You know, And they're like, what can we do to you, Jonah, to make your God happy. Perhaps, um, you know, they're thinking things like walk the plank. You know, that's, that's what they're talking about. Throw you overboard with, a, you know, with some, the anchor tied to your ankles. Notice Jonah is moving further away from God as he goes to Tarshish. But the sailors, they're moving closer to God. They're taking him seriously, deadly seriously. Jonah wants the easy way out. Rather than repent and confess his sins, he would rather die. Verse 12, pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now when we're living in ongoing sin, 
And we know that God is hating this ongoing sin. What Christians do, what we do, is usually end up with what you could call, what psychologists call, cognitive dissonance. This is where we feel a clash in our mind and in our gut between the world view that we have, the, the, the view of the universe that we have based on the Christian faith that we hold to, and the clash is with the life that we're living. We know that the way we're supposed to be is the exact opposite to the way we are, and this clash occurs, and it causes such a dissonance that we can't handle it. And I think this is the way God speaks to us, actually. So, for example, you tell yourself that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and that you are an honest person. And then you know that secretly you're stealing money from your work by fiddling the books. And this jars in your mind because you, you know that, that this is not the way a Christian should be and so you start to feel stressed and ashamed and like you were living a lie. That's cognitive dissonance. Another example, you tell yourself you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and everyone thinks that's who you are. A person who seeks to live in sexual purity. And then, secretly, you are pursuing intimacy, sexual intimacy with someone you're not married to. And deep down in your soul, you know that God doesn't want this and that he's angry about this. And you know that you are living a lie And the image that people see of you is one thing and secretly you're another thing. You feel this clash inside of you. You tell yourself you're a disciple of Jesus Christ that is graciously loved by God, that you're a child of God, and yet you hate the guts of one of your relatives, one of your family members. You're constantly criticising them, backstabbing them, wishing they would leave the country. And you wish in your your heart wasn't full of this hate, but it is. And you know that this is not the way you're meant to be. You're not meant to be characterised by this kind of hatred. You're meant to be characterised by Christian love. There's the cognitive dissonance. So what we try and do is resolve it. There you go. You've resolved it. One way to resolve it, and this is the best way to resolve your feeling of life isn't right, is to own up to your sin and repent. That's the ultimate best way to do it, right? Then you will feel much better and you will grow as a disciple as a result. That's how maturity occurs. You say to yourself and to your confessor, yes, I am a sexual sinner. I am sorry, I want forgiveness. And your confessor, the person who you are confessing to, which could be a Christian friend that you trust, or it could be your community group leader, it could be me, could be um, Beck um, or another person you know that you trust is a Christian we will say after you confess in the name of Jesus Christ in the power of his death and resurrection you are forgiven you're, you're, you're free from your, the burden of your sin when I've confessed my sins after carrying them around to a friend or to a person that I trust it, it's like the weight is lifted off your shoulders and you're on cloud nine hearing those words. And this is what Jonah should have done in that moment. He should have confessed his sins to the sailors. This is what I've done. And he should have said it to God, I'm sorry, repented and said, I will be obedient now. 
But let's face it, he would have avoided some very fishy situations that were about to come his way. Sorry, I just joked then. If you're struggling, if you're struggling and wrestling with your faith, and you're not sure if you really believe in Jesus, I ask you, have you ever, have you ever confessed your sins and repented of your sins to anyone and had them declare to you that you are forgiven? If you've never humbled yourself to that point, then, then you're missing out on something that's very foundational to the Christian faith. It's no wonder that you doubt the gospel because you've not experienced the power of the gospel. What many Christians do, so that's, that's one way you can repent of your sin. That's the, basically, that's the way I want us all to, to, to deal with our, our sin and our cognitive dissonance. But there's another way that we can deal with it, which is that we try and escape. And so this is how Christian escapism works. It's escaping from the voice of God. It's escaping the reality of who you are as a Christian. And it can take many forms. Here's some forms. It can start with excuses. You say to yourself, well, I'm doing the best that I can do. This is all that God expects, so... Isn't that all that matters? What about grace, you know? And so you kind of use this rubbery word, grace, and this kind of God, you know, is a warm and fuzzy God up in heaven to give yourself latitude to rebel against him. Secondly, you create this kind of artificial timeline for yourself, for your Christian escapism. You think to yourself, as long as I eventually clean up my act, then it'll all be okay. Of course, you're the one deciding what that timeline is, and you just delay it and delay it and delay it. A third way you might do Christian escapism is like this. You know, you're feeling this dissonance, and so you effectively go like this. La, 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 la. And you fill yourself, your life with so much noise that you just ignore the reality of what's going on. You busy yourself up by working long hours so you don't have to face it. You drink yourself to sleep every night. You... You become obsessed with some form of activity that you can focus on that d- distracts you from dealing with the dissonance. Perhaps you go travelling and you feel, feel your life with exciting experiences. This is what Jonah was trying to do, wasn't it? These are all just psychological techniques that we can try to block out the voice of God. Another way I've seen is that people get angry with the church. We're talking about Christians here. Christians getting angry with the church because of their own cognitive dissonance. You say, Christians are so judgmental. They should just stop judging me and they should love me for who I am and what I'm doing and how I'm living my life. And paradoxically, you feel self-righteous in your rebellion against God. Another way is that I've seen this a lot of times. You, you, you feel you're in rebellion, you feel the cognitive dissonance, and you start blaming the church. So you go looking for another one, another church that will offer you a different kind of theology and worldview that will fit with the way you want to live your life. One that perhaps doesn't talk about sin and just talks about loving each other. Yeah, man, cool, hippie, yeah. Another way you could do it is that you could... Go to the, this kind of other kind of church that will allow you to live however you want to live. And then after a while, say to yourself, actually, I don't even think I need to be a Christian anymore. 
and you substitute the Christian community for another kind of community of post-Christian friends. So you meet up with every now and again just to talk about organic farming, you know, and um, you know how to cook vegetarian tofu soup or whatever. You might even go along to one of these um, faux religious, or you might call it a religious churches that are popping up um, like the weekly service in Thornbury, which um, doesn't actually have a religion that it's attached to, but they meet each week and you pay entry to go and you talk about themes like um, overcoming addiction and dealing with your existential crisis and you sing, you know, 60s folk songs and, and you paint pictures together. And that is your way of escaping God. It's just another ocean for you to jump into. Jesus told a very famous story about this, of course, the prodigal son. And there's a lot of close similarities between this story and the story of Jonah. Remember the younger son who couldn't live in the loving family house anymore. He just wanted to do his own thing and he, and he offended his father by saying, give me my inheritance now, my share, and I'm going to live the, my life the way I want to live and I'm going to just walk away from the loving family that I've had. Thank you very much. And he did this, and he went away. But instead of a storm that whipped up, there was a famine. And instead of being thrown into the sea, he ended up in a pigsty, feeding the pigs. What a mess he found himself in. But he came to his senses, and he did come home, and found his father waiting for him with his arms open. We've got to stop practicing Christian escapism. Don't go to Tarshish with Jonah. Go to the foot of the cross with Jesus. Jonah, he was the disobedient prophet who tried to escape from God's call in his life. But Jesus is the one true prophet, isn't he? Who God sent not just to preach to his enemies but to graciously die for his enemies so as to provide a way of forgiveness. Jonah's sin caused a storm. And when Jesus died on the cross, there was another kind of weather experience that sky turned black and wind turned to blood. But it wasn't Jesus' sin that caused that. It was our sin that caused that. But three days later, the sun rose and Jesus rose. And he, was, and he defeated Dead, uh, death and dealt with your sin and my sin. Jonah was sacrificing himself for selfish purposes. It was an easy way out. But Jesus' sacrifice was completely selfless. It was the ultimate act of grace. Come home to God. Repent. Stop escaping. Just to finish, let me point out what happens. The sailors didn't want to throw Jonah in because they were scared of how God was going to respond for killing an innocent man. That's the phrase they use. But eventually they saw there was no other option and they threw him in. And verse 15, and the raging sea grew calm. And we're going to sing a song about that a bit later. And verse 16 says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Out of Jonah's disobedience, God has worked things for his glory and brought the sailors 
to him. The sailors are bowing down and worshipping him. And what that shows us is how profoundly sovereign God is. Even when we're trying to escape, yet God still does what he wants to do. That he's still in control. Our life might be in a mess in our rebellion, but God is still working. Let's pray. Lord God, if we are in Christian escapism right now, if we're sticking our fingers in our ear or running off to Tarshish or just trying to think of ways to um, jump in the ocean and avoid facing up to you, we pray that today can be the first day that we step forward in obedience, that we confess our sins, that we turn away from our rebellion. Thank you that you are a God of grace, that you love us, that you that you love even the dodgy sailors and that you love even the dodgy prophet Jonah and that you love us. Amen. Let's say the creed.